0: Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Bonjour, Miss Hampton. <laughs> Bonjour, ça va? Hi, Mitch. Salut. How, how's it going? Oui, ça va. Et toi? Oh, très bien, merci. Oui, oui. <laughs> So, I think it's my turn to ask the questions on your podcast. Oh, boy. What do you think? Well, that is the plan. So, and, and so you're going to be Oriana Falaci, uh, F- 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 right? That's going to be your. I-, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, don't know I think. I guess we'll know who that reference uh, yeah. Um. Well, thank God for Google. Um,
1: yeah. I-, I think, in terms of references, Mitch, mm-hmm. I, you have such an astonishing, um, I don't know, like your, your mind really is like a giant encyclopedia. It's like Wikipedia is Mitch Hampton. (laughs) (laughs) There are times where I'm just like, wow, like the obscure things that you're able to, you know, kind of hold in your memory. Mm -hmm. I, it's really amazing, and I have to, you know, I, I listened to an episode that you did where you did talk about your uh, diagnosis, oh, and I, 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 I thought, you know, that is to me one of the most fascinating um, aspects mm. of being anywhere on the spectrum is mm. that, you know, you have this remarkable brain mm-hmm. that um, it, you're, you're clearly like, you know, kind of off the scales. Mm-hmm. In terms of your retention and what you're able to process and what you're able to, you know, kind of hold in your 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 brain space, mm-hmm. all at the same time. So, I have very very little brain space compared to you. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. my um, my you know, I I have a lot less uh, reference a lot of the time, just off the cuff than you do. So. Give me a minute. Sometimes I have to Google what you're talking about. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> Every so often. You, you and I definitely are into a lot of similar things, but every so often I'll, you know, hear you on your podcast and I'll have to Google like, oh, what is that? You know, and I've actually learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, you know, I think your podcast is such an interesting one. Okay. Because you're a very good interviewer. I think you're really great at putting your guests at ease yeah. and drawing out, you know, really great information from them. Um, your recent one with, um, I think it was
0: Elizabeth Williams. Oh, you listened to that about crime
1: frustration uh, Fantastic. Yeah, part- yeah. I mean, that's a real, you know, anybody I think who's a true cri- who's into true crime in general yeah. should listen to that podcast. Oh, well, it thank is you. fascinating. I, I had no idea about some of those cases she had been involved with and her and her early history, I, I was just really floored. That was such a great podcast. I, I, I sent it on to a lot of different people. So, But I think, yeah, now it's your turn. And, um, you know, I think you have to realize you yourself are a pretty fascinating cat. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure that people probably have a lot of questions. And I definitely have a lot of questions. And I think I joked with you one time that mm-hmm. I wanted you to do a segment called Ask a Dandy.
0: Because yeah. you're a dying breed, <laughs> you know? I, yeah, is that what I don't this think, episode is? I mean, I didn't know really. Oh, what, nah, it's not going to be just Ask a Dandy, yeah.
1: but I do have a few questions relating to that. But in, you know, okay. it, it's 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 part of the interview today. Okay. Uh, some questions about, I, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Yes. Um, because I, yes. I, I don't think I've ever met a Dandy before. Mm -hmm. Not a real one, Mm -hmm. maybe one that's part time, you know, just Mm -hmm. likes to get dressed up for occasions. But you truly live this. Yes. 24 seven. Yes. And I am very curious to know Mm -hmm. what the genesis was of you becoming a dandy. And just how you know, what was that? What was the if you could pinpoint like a moment where this
0: the seed was planted and then how that evolved? Um, it's actually very specific. So it's actually, in particular, the MGM movies of the 30s. Okay. So it's in particular um, certain Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers pictures. So the, the, so the gay divorce or the gay divorce saying, carefree, top hat. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like kind of the clothes that, that of course, he wore. But also, in general, the menswear of that period, and so I guess catching those black and white movies—I guess on television or syndication or—or or, um, so that may have been the very first impetus. And do you happen to remember what you know? What
1: about what age were you when you started to find yourself being drawn to that
0: um, that fashion aesthetic? Well, to hold that thought because it wasn't just that. There was actually a confluence of, of very disparate influences. Because American Jigolo was also an influence. Oh, that's also interesting. Okay. Well, because I liked some of the Armani clothing in that movie that that Richard Gere person wore. That in. Richard Gere, yes. Um, so that was also, but yeah, but that's very different in and cut and design. Um, although Armani was at that time was interested in the 30s, it's a totally different silhouette. But you know, it's it's uh, so it's it's actually many. So you might say there's many influences. But as far as actual age, you know, I really, I guess, I don't know. When I was a when I was in t- age ten, eleven, twelve, I just started wearing a coat and tie every day. You know, so it's just something that I did. You know, and, and I kind of wow. never really okay. stopped doing. it. I mean, I stopped doing it when I went to boarding school. Um, well, I, well, hold on, because in in Rockford Arts Academy they had a uniform, right? Uh, navy corduroy and a, and a and a cheap sort of cotton, baby blue cotton shirt. But and did you of, like wearing? Did you like that you know, uniform? Or I, I, you know, I wasn't a gay. It was a uniform, but I did. But I, I always wore a coat and a tie with it every day, and so I was able to continue continue doing that. And then there were so influences the, the, like there was a friend of mine who who died at the age of nineteen, who huh. who was a wonderful bassist and he was electric bass was his instrument he really mm-hmm. worshipped, he worshipped will lee and marcus miller this is the early this is the mid-80s right and he really was into okay. you know the letterman band and will lee and and he was the bassist yeah i remember that he, he was the bassist in our ensemble i was always doing all these gigs with him and so he was really into clothes he was from dearborn michigan and but his style was very much miami vice very you know Oh, great. Very. Um, I mean, he literally dressed like Crockett and Tubbs. Kind of, you know, the oh, wow. Same, the same, and he would, he would, yeah, he would wear, he would wear like a a, a turquoise t shirt underneath a cream jacket in the in the winter. You know. And, oh, I can and picture it. Yeah. These, he wore these Tom Mc shoes with almost no sole. You know, if God, I in remember those. Yeah. In, in colors like dove gray and yes okay. i remember all of those yeah, yeah. Stuff, almost like a kind of a merry-go-round chess king a little bit of merry-go-round chess king oh merry-go-round who doesn't who doesn't remember yeah. merry-go-round so and so I, I i think i kind of was a little influenced by him and so then he died of a heart attack when he in his first <gasps> year, in his first year of oh university, in his first year oh. university of miami You know, he's a star That's very sad. And he just, because he had a heart, a genetic heart condition. Oh, man. so I vowed on that. I actually made a vow that I was going to dress like that the rest of my life. That would have been, oh God, it would have been 1986, 87. And I've been kind of of doing it the same ever since. And it, you know, it goes through cycles and decades. Right. That's probably too long of an answer, but maybe it's not. What you're looking for? No, I, I, i no. It's exactly you know exactly what I was looking for because
1: I'm uh you know it, it's incredibly sad to hear that uh, you lost a friend uh, such a young age, a friend and fellow musician, and so to know that part of you know your, um you know your your life as a dandy is a kind of an homage to him as well as mm-hmm. yes you know just the actual clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple of more questions related to this. Um, Because you live this dandy, you know, lifestyle, like 24-7, and I get the impression, too, that, you know, kind of the aesthetic of your home is also very kind of 1930s, and Mm -hmm. um, you've got a lot of your, you know, memorabilia up on the walls and stuff like that. Um, When you, I don't want to get too personal, Mm -hmm. but I am very curious about what a dandy wears to sleep. Do you wear pajamas? Do You wear nightshirt. Do you, you know, or um, you, or if you're honest, are you like the rest of us blobs who just wear a t-shirt and underwear?
0: Um, well, I, I sleep in traditional pajamas. I don't sleep naked, and I don't sleep. I don't sleep in my underwear. Okay. But partly because I'm more comfortable in pajamas, mm-hmm. and i and it's just more comfortable than being ne- naked in bed. I think I because think of the temperature, I like to keep my home sort of on the cool side. I don't like being overheated, and I'm sensitive right. to being overheated, so, I, you know, I kind of, you know. And, and oh, I'm the, yeah, I'm the same way. I
1: can't—I really overheat quickly, and I yeah. can't stand a warm or hot environment. And I, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, when you're wearing a suit most of the time as well, um, yeah. you're going to— yeah, you know, yeah, it definitely helps well, to keep people, the the
0: room a little cooler. A lot. Well, a lot of people are marked on that. Actually, uh, wearing a suit, the kind of clothes that I wear, the way that they're constructed and designed and cut, is actually closer to wearing like a almost a a cardigan. Oh, nice. It's basically okay. so, that comfortable. The reason why a lot of people. A lot of men I could speak of are uncomfortable is that they're wearing the wrong size or they're wearing mass produced clothes that actually don't don't feel well because it's not, it's made for someone else. And so that's why it's uncomfortable. Right. And also the and fa- all- yeah, the fabrics aren't very good. So again, I don't wanna go right. into into the weeds of the threads too much on all this, but that's but so yeah, that's actually so- very yeah.
1: You do have you, your clothes are generally bespoke, right? You yeah. you choose your fabric. You yeah. actually go to a tailor. Yeah. Everything is really made perfectly um, to fit you. Yeah. Okay, and my next question is kind of related to you know your your love of the fashions of the 1930s, mm-hmm. but also the fact that you have a real passion for the 1970s. You are a 1970s scholar okay. as a matter. Of, and okay. so I'm, yeah. what, what what I've always found curious is that you love the 1970s, yeah. but you dress like the 1930s. Yeah. So, you know, I think this makes you really interesting. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you you know, to look at you, you are kind of a real blast from the past. Yeah. And I'm wondering why um, you didn't develop a love for you know, dressing in the style of the 70s, for example, because other people, you know, I do have some other friends who are um, scholars of particular mm-hmm. eras of pop culture, especially. You know, I got a friend who particularly loves the 60s and everything in his house looks like the 1960s. His oh, wow. clothes are all very 60s. You know, he's got a very specific kind of mind. 60s aesthetic. Yep. And you know, that all kind of fits together, but with you, it's a little different. So can you you know, can you tell me
0: why the discrepancy or well you know, um, is there some reason that you don't wear clothes that are more evocative of the seventies? I, I don't like menswear from the seventies. I find it ugly and I don't like I don't like the dimensions. Um, I don't like um, and I don't I certainly don't like the often the color and the fabrics in the main women's wear from the 70s is a whole other thing. Women's is some wonderful, is incredible women's wear from the 70s. So it's different, I think, for men and women, at least from my perspective. Um, so that's that's the major reason for that. But, you know, my my interest in the 70s goes back to a dream I had. Um, um, I don't want to get into, I mean, I had some sort of weird dream, dream of time travel within my own lifetime and
1: do we have, do we have a connection? <laughs> yeah. Something, yeah uh, that's the, that's one of the pitfalls of, you know, trying to, I love technology. It's great, but you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it, it fails. So there you go. What, what I don't know what the last.
0: Yeah. Jumping into uh, the seventies. So yeah, I had this vivid dream uh, in which I went back in time, which given that this dream was in the eighties was back in time about five or six years. And in the dream, okay. I, was, I was no longer a boy, but was a man. So in other words, I wasn't the age that I would have been in the 70s. So if I was 13, I became 23 or something in this dream. And I, okay. I was going to this disco and it was just the sights and the sounds. <laughs> and I, and it was, I think uh, the song that was playing was, I think it was Chic, I think. I think. I think it was Chic. Chic. It was either Chic, or, yeah, uh, Rogers and um, you know, um, one of their one of their big hits, or it was Fly Robin Fly. Maybe it could have been the uh, the rock right. The uh, you know that that band was the Connection, the Silver Silver Connection, or one of those one of those type things. That was the music. And then I woke up, and you know I had no idea what this dream meant, and I you know I really didn't know, so I had to figure it out. Right. You there?
1: Can you hear me, Mitch?
0: Now I can. Now I
1: can. Yeah, we're starting to have a, we're we're getting a really spotty connection. The the last thing I heard was that you had a dream where you were going to a discotheque and you were 23 years old in the dream rather than the
0: age you were, which was around 13. Yeah, we're up to date. And so I woke up and then I began to realize uh, that um, this was a decade called the 70s. And I wanted to give the 70s my love because no one loved it. People made fun of it and hated it, and everything was about the 50s and the 60s and everything. So I considered it an orphaned era. And so I decided to become an expert on it. And so the rest is history, right? <laughs> Literally, you know.
1: That's that's a fantastic story. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic story. I mean, I, I completely agree with you that um, – the 70s gets, even today, I don't think it gets nearly the respect that it deserves. Okay. Um, my my favorite, I don't know about you, but I think you're on the same page with me. My favorite era of American film and television is the 1970s, Sure. hands down. Sure. And, um, you know, not to say that there's not good stuff now, but
0: yeah.
1: just we, nothing we just really... Watch- you nothing- and I
0: just, just watched something good now, right? Did you see Halston yet, or did you see... um? Well, of course, Halston's about the '70s. We we saw um, the Sons of Sam about, which is about yeah.
1: yeah, the Sons of Sam. There's such you know, it, even if you're not a true crime fan, I think oh. that the just the great shot, the great shots of uh, 1970s New York. Oh, you know, wow. um, it's worth watching just just That's for great. that. Well,
0: you get to see Mayor Beam and Mayor A Bean in press conferences and yeah, and you see all yeah. those um those those women in Queens. In London, oh yeah and like like basically arm in arm saying we want to get this guy he's we didn't we
1: oh yeah uh, and, i mean i y- yeah. you know the uh, i think we even remember when that stuff was actually happening you know yeah. we were kids sure and um you know to be you know here now watching this documentary about this thing that happened that yeah, definitely it's... you know got into our minds when we were little kids and uh you know, kind of affected the way that we we mm-hmm. see the world after that. So it's I, I love I love that era, yeah, even I mean, even, histori-
0: for, histori- even for the true mm-hmm. crime. <laughs> well, historians, my feeling about it is historians uh, make the rules about what's important, and so they're, they're the ones that decide to make this year important as opposed to another year. Um, you know. That's
1: really true. And um, I really appreciate your approach to documenting the 1970s because you really get into the weeds. You really get down into the really fine grains Mm -hmm. of things that nobody would, things that have just fallen through the cracks that nobody remembers ever existed Mm -hmm. You're the guy you're almost like an archaeologist in that way mm-hmm. that you're not just a, you're not just a historian, but you're kind of really digging up a lot of stuff well, I, that's just
0: long forgotten well I like material culture you know I really love the fact that i have a i have in my seven i have a seventies museum in my house and i have, a c- yes, I, know. I, have I have a citizens' band c b glass that truckers would have like for beer and stuff wow. and i have next to it like a magic uh you know, some kind of a mood rain and some, I mean, I have all these little trinkets. Now, the interesting thing about all this stuff is that it is kind of junk and a lot of it would be worthless to a lot of people. Like it doesn't have monetary value mm-hmm. you know, to people, which is really great. value. Well, yeah, but that, that makes that even better because it's easy to get. It doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. And, right. then, and then you have something you love and nobody really wants it or a lot of people don't want it. It's kind of great. You know, I see that that's a that's going to be a selling point. I mean, I, I kinda, I'm kind of thankful I'm not obsessed with the mid 60s and I want to get I don't know. A, I want to get a really valuable obituary of JFK or something. In, <laughs> right. In New York. I, don't, I don't care about that, care about that stuff. Coffee at all. Table. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But that stuff's very expensive. And that's where do you-, you get, you know.
1: Where do you find a lot of your um, 70s collectibles and memorabilia? Do you go thrift store shopping? Do you go on eBay? Not anymore. I
0: mean, I, no, I'm very, you know, I'm really into decluttered. I've always been an anti-clutter person, believe it or not. I was always ahead of the curve. I was never, I've was i never been a pack rat. And I've always been kind of very mindful of, of how, much, how much I own. And I always, you know, I'm a Libra. I like balance. So I try to keep things balanced. So mm-hmm. I really do a mm-hmm. lot of... But, you know, I happen to, but again, the thing about 70s stuff is that it's everywhere. Again, it's, it's you know, because everybody wants to get rid of it. That's the thing about right. It's the, it's the era that keeps on giving. It's the give that keeps on giving because people kind of don't want to get rid of their old, you know, they want to yeah. get rid of their halter tops and get rid of their, you know, their... They certainly, I mean, the TV guides, who wants that, right? I do, but, you know, there's Boy,
1: there, was a, yeah. there was a time where everybody had stacks and stacks of TV guides. Do you remember that? Like, nobody threw them away.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, it's fun now when you come upon some of those things, if you do go into a Goodwill or Salvation mm-hmm. Army and you find a stack of TV guides. yeah. Uh, from the seventies, it's kind of a it's
0: kind of a find. William, Right now, I've just started listening to the audiobook of Mackenzie Phillips. She has a new memoir. Ah, Mackenzie um, Phillips is in uh, the
1: daughter of uh, John yeah. Phillips.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm really enjoying it for two reasons. Number one, it's all in her voice. Not she's reading it, which is fantastic. It's her life story, which is harrowing, but also yeah. really beautiful. And so I'm really enjoying that. So I'm pretty completist about the '70s. So if something comes out of a, of a star of that era, or whether it be television, or I try to I try to get at least familiar with it. You can't follow everything, but you got to pick and choose. But I it's really enjoying this this moment. Now.
1: So yeah. is your interest in the '70s specifically American uh, pop culture, or do you extend your interest? to other countries and what was going on there. Because for example, I think I've mentioned to you before that I really have been a lifelong kind of Anglophile. So I love a lot of British shows and British bands and, you know, very, very into the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just wondering if you've ever kind of crossed over the ocean into what was happening in the seventies in the UK, because I have a feeling you'd find it very interesting.
0: Well, it depends on what it is. So The Two Ronnies, I'm a big fan of. Okay. Love The Two Ronnies. Um, Are You Being Served is an iconic 70s show, which I love. Great. A great show. Um, but it's I'm I'm so- also interested in the Mike Lee series, Plays for a Day. Oh,
1: oh God, it's great. Like
0: yeah. Abigail's Party, um, yeah. Meantime, that little feed. Oh. Did these little films for British television with Tim Roth and Alison Steadman and and Gary Oldman, those are really remarkable yes. and that's yeah. but again that's more about that's also that it's Mike Lee that he's such a good writer
1: oh know, god yeah it, one of my favorite
0: so, yeah it isn't so much in it's 70s although it is 70s but you know I don't you know I like some of the 70s prog rock and I like some of the 70s I do like a lot of the 70s pop music so I you know certainly some of that's yeah have fresh. You
1: ever, for example have yeah. you were you ever into or have you ever seen top of the Pop? the
0: i watched it I try to Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean that that that's actually one of my favorite um music mm-hmm. programs of that era. Yep. I mean of course Top of the Pops went way on beyond the 70s, but the the yeah. episodes from the 70s were in my opinion the best. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, the, some of them into the early 80s were were pretty good too. So speaking of, you know, now that we're talking about music, yeah. um of course you are a phenomenal musician. Oh, thank um, you. And so I, I'm I'm very interested in hearing about your your evolution as a musician as well. You know how long? When did you start playing? What was your training? What?
0: Uh, well, I was tra- I was trained. I was trained in Tampa, Florida, originally, in the '70s, with an Italian old school Italian piano teacher named Violet Violeta Mendezzi who was an mm-hmm. immigrant, immigrant from Italy, and she lived with her cousin who was a cabinet maker, and they lived in the same house. And she was into opera, and she directed the chorus at the high school in Tampa. And she taught me piano lessons. And uh, it was my first piece. So that was, I owe a lot to her, uh, basic things technique. And, and, uh-huh. and um, a so, would- yeah.
1: As a younger musician, did yeah. you have aspirations even back then to
0: become a professional musician or, uh, uh, you totally, know? Totally. And in fact, you know, here's what I would do. I would practice piano. And then you know, because I was living in Tampa, all the really, I really liked the jazz artists that would come into town. And I would see everybody. And, I, and if they came into town, if it was George Benson coming into, into town um, or, you know, Sometimes these would be kind of pop jazz people. Yeah, yeah, George Sanders. But but, I, but not only did I really um, go to all these concerts, I tried to buy, do ear training and and kind of pick out what they were doing, which is so a lot of my practice was just basically trying to learn this music, which is very hard. It was hard for me, in other words, because I had to, you know, because I was learning in this classical style, which is all about the score. So I was kind of a, a divided consciousness. One part of me was working on the score, you know, the sheet music, and then the other part of me was trying to I guess train my ears and figure this, you know, other stuff out. Right, right. So So in terms
1: of your obviously your favorite music and the music that you seem mm. to be most drawn to is jazz. That's yeah. kind of the the genre that you're yeah. you know, you're most comfortable in. Yeah. Um are there other uh genres of music that you're interested in or that you like that somebody might not expect that you would like.
0: Oh boy. (laughs) You know, I I guess I am biased. I mean, I'd rather listen to Cedar Walton than, than Ben Folds five.
1: Wow, you're the first person in the history of the human race to ever make that specific statement. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, you can't compare them, right? They're, but they're both good. And so I'll say on the record, yeah. I love Ben Foltz's five. But, you know, it's true that that's, you know, I like anything piano oriented. Like if it's piano rock, like Amanda Palmer. And oh, gosh. Like, right, yeah. but That's just my piano sense. Cent- you know, anything that gets away from the guitar, I'm interested in the piano. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm biased towards the piano, I guess you would say. Um, yeah.
1: So. Okay. So, just that, you know, just because you do have such a great ear for music, and I think uh, again another thing you and I share is that I think we we do tend to gravitate towards older music versus yeah. more contemporary music. Uh-huh. Uh, however, there are some pretty formidable contemporary artists um, and. I think yeah. that, you know, sometimes we kind of overlook them. Are there any off the top of your head that actually are just, you know, really in the here and now? Oh, it's hard you know, to I, it's hard to, I like that you really like.
0: It's really hard for me to speak about contemporary things because I don't follow it very closely. Um, but I could tell you who I think is good that's beyond and contemporary. So I, I could tell you that I like Robert Glasper a lot.
1: Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Li- great. Then again,
0: that's considered in the jazz category. I like. Yeah, that.
1: exactly. I'm going to ask like anybody in the like, for example in the pop music world uh, that you.
0: I don't really. I mean, it, would you consider Esper- Esperanza uh, Spawn? Is she considered pop and jazz, or is she? Hard- I don't think so. I think jazz. Really? I, I would say jazz. Yeah, I don't I'm think listening- thinking. Yeah, I don't know. I guess Ben Folds Five is considered out of date, right? That's older, right? Um,
1: well, I mean, it's, it's older though. I mean, they still tour and they still, you know, they're still highly relevant. I mean, they still have a very loyal fan base, and I I definitely love that band too. And um, but I also don't know if I would call that band pop either. You know, it's really hard to. I listen. They're not. They're not an easy band to classify.
0: Yeah, I mean, my you know, you I think when I think a musician. Um, has to, in a way, pick and choose. And they, sometimes a musician wants to follow their muse rather than stay relevant or current. Yeah. And I guess I'm guilty of that. I'm not necessarily very relevant or current. I mean, I sort I of know what's out there because it's in the air, and I sort of kind of know more about it than people would realize. Just because, yeah. You know.
1: If, if you could change the landscape of contemporary pop music, oh. uh, how, how do you think you'd want to see it changed?
0: I would like. I would wish contemporary music, uh, pop music, was a little less ambient. Oh, that's interesting. A little less okay. electronic and had more harmonic development. Oh. I still think. Okay. Pop, I still think pop. You know, this is why I like Robert Glasper or or or, or, or um because his music has devel- uh-huh. development in it. Or um, I just or, I, or I, even I, 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 like. And I also I also don't like the melodies of most uh, pop singers. You know, they're not they're not melodies aren't very good, and it's kind of. They're just too, it's almost too circular and too... Um, I,
1: think you're, yeah, I think you're right about that. Every, yeah. you're, I see what you mean now when you say, you know, ambient. It feels like everything is written these days to make sure that it can serve multiple functions. Like, one, it has to sound good at the disco. It has right. to be able to drop into the nightclub. Two, oh. it's got to be able to, you have to be able to play it over the sound system of, yeah. you know, an H&M store or the supermarket. Yeah. And you know, are at the background of a party. So I, I, I get what you mean. It's um, something about modern, like contemporary
0: pop music, with is two, just so much yeah, less. The, but, the, but again, these things I've complained about are actually styles that people like. So again, who? and This is where I'm kind of relativistic. So a lot of contemporary pop music has one and goes to the three. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the one, which is not very. You know, that's that's not really a lot. That's there's a kind of. Um, Or one to six to one, the minor six to one. And it it kind of will do that for a while. And that gets very, um, it's just sort of, I don't know what the word is, it's a little, but you know, a lot of melodies, uh, they're, you know, they're a little, I guess they're too static or they they circle around one or two pitches, you know. And I I, I sort of like a melody to have a little more development than that.
1: But then again, do you think? Yeah. Do you think that the reason um, modern pop songs are constructed this way is because that just is generally something like psychologically, it's easy to digest?
0: Oh, I you know? know. There's a lot of speculation. I mean, a lot of people, I'll tell you what I don't think it is. So I don't, I'm, I'm a very generous person. So I don't <laughs> think, I don't think it's connected to lack of training or talent or ability. I think it's an actual aesthetic preference. And I think it may have many complicated roots having to do with, it could just be familiarity. It's kind of what people have been conditioned to. You know, one person says, I do this, mm-hmm. let's do this, and let's create this style and get it out there. And then it, that works, and so people repeat it. Yeah, that's what
1: I mean when I say psychologically easy to digest,
0: you know. Yeah, but I don't really think, you don't again, think just because I don't like a lot of it um, doesn't mean, number one, that I don't understand it. Because I do, and does not mean, number two, that I think it's objectively, like, wrong? It's just that I don't like it. I like to see alternatives to it, because it just makes it, it makes uh, the musical landscape a little um, repetitive, you know.
1: Uh, oh, so, yeah, very, very. Um, and especially if you're a, a 70s scholar and you're yeah. a appreciative of, you know, the music of the 70s, cause I know that you like disco,
0: too. <laughs> I do, well, just go, just go ahead and develop it, though. Yeah, it's it's true. So if we take a fly, Robin Fly, or um, um, I don't know. It's just like the disco songs usually have a have a kind of a form to them, right? They have a they're they're on you're on a seventh chord, and then you're going to go to the four, and then you go back to yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot more movement around the musical scale in general. And also, I like the instrumentation. Like, I like the way um, it's mixed. I like the way they mix the electric bass and the sense then, and I like the way the drummer was recorded i mean i saw I saw a documentary from sixty Minutes with Dan Rather about this new crazy thing called disco music and they and um it's, it's from nineteen seventy eight and they actually go in and they actually film the recording of um Betty Wright song, I think a Betty Wright disc, and they show all the session musicians and the overdubbing, and I really enjoyed watching that because I liked there's a there's a there's a spiritual connection between what they're doing in that song and all, some of the minimalists, like some of what John Adams was doing or Terry Riley. There's a little bit of a overlap, right, in terms of just using <laughs> the little motifs and repeating them, what Philip Glass was doing. See, I'm interested see because i'm a composer and i like to bring things together i'm interested in the connections between things or how things are similar more similar than we realize so i was very excited to see that I thought, oh yeah it's a little bit like um what philip because i saw philip glass and bowling green in the 80s perform um and that just blew my mind not that i like necessarily like his music but seeing that concert blew my mind and just the the, the you know the
1: yeah, I mean, so I think people like Philip Glass, you know, him and maybe somebody like Laurie Anderson, they're very specific tastes. and I kind of always kind of put those two artists in a similar kind of. Um, oh, I don't like to use the word boss, but let's just use yeah. the word boss for simplicity's sake, because it seems to be that um, people really love or hate. Yeah, Philip Glass, and it's, it's the same with Laurie Anderson. I'm with you. Like I, I couldn't say I'm a Philip Glass fan, but I yeah. could also say that when I hear his music, I feel affected. Yeah, you know, well, my, I, uh, so, Laurie yeah. Anderson. I feel very affected by by this music, but I'm not sure that I'd want to put it on and listen to it voluntarily. <laughs> well, you know,
0: people might be surprised to learn that I love the Velvet Underground, and maybe not surprised. They might be surprised to know that I love the Ramones. You now, know, that, does that actually does surprise me. But I the mean, Ramones, that's, that's... But the Ramones not, are, yeah. I'm not surprised about the
1: Velvet Underground, but the Ramones is a new one. That's interesting. I wouldn't have imagined that you're a Ramones fan.
0: Well, because the music sounds good. Like, I actually uh-huh. think their drummer was sort of innovative and in the tempo, mm-hmm. and the way they play tempos is beautiful. And I like the... And it's, again, it's for me, everything is, out as it sound? And to me, the Ramones sound good. Like, they're appealing... And the and the way they they do these really fast songs and the, and the women, mm-hmm. those tempos are kind of hard to do and I admire that and there's also an energy and excitement of lobotomy and I think yeah. it's really so I so there its isn't I'm not like a totally an anti-rock person obviously because I love Let It Bleed and I love mm-hmm. Ramones, and uh, mm-hmm. I like some Zeppelin. But it, wow, okay. Well, I, so I, like, I like Peter Frampton comes so again but even though you know so called jazz. That, uh, mm-hmm. is my is my favorite music. I, I do, you know, I listen to a lot of different things. So yeah, I also like a lot of R and B, like a lot of soul. I like Teddy Pendergrass and um, Marvin Gaye. But uh, so your
1: taste uh, really your taste really runs the spectrum, and that's what I was trying to get at. Is I yeah. think that you know somebody could easily get this idea about you that you really only live in jazz and don't yeah, really I venture right. outside of that. Yeah. So one yeah. one last question for you, Mitch. Since we're you know we're coming up on time, yes. um, you're also a philosopher.
0: Yes, uh-huh.
1: and I have um, often enjoyed your philosophical musings that you that you pose. Yeah, and I'm curious to hear about your evolution as a as a philosopher as well, because, I mean, you're, you know, you have to understand you're a very interesting guy. You're a guy who's a dandy. You're a, a yeah. very, you know, very classically trained musician and a, a scholar of the seventies, a philosopher. You're really a modern day Renaissance man.
0: And I, um, try I try to be actually, I mean, yeah, I sort of like the Renaissance, but it's philosophically I've gone through many changes. So I'll try to be, so, I'll try to be very brief. Do you want to, does that, do you have more questions? Yeah, well,
1: go ahead. give ahead. Give, give the honest answer. You know, what okay. what what started your interest in philosophy? Because again, I, you know most people aren't interested in philosophy, and I you know you and I talked about this recently that um, mm-hmm. you know part of uh, I think what the the intellectual the the anemic intellectual yeah. nature of most societies now. Is that uh, people are not interested in philosophy or any particular right. disciplines that you know force you to think critically, to three, you know to, to actually develop your critical thinking skills. Mm-hmm. So how did that happen for you, and was, how did you
0: develop? I was inspired by my first year at New England Conservatory of Music, 1985. I had a mentor there named Sandra Joshua. Sandra took me aside and said, "Mitch, you're bright, but you need to be reading these books." And she made me a list. And it was Michel Foucault, *The History of Sexuality*. <laughs> wow. Uh, Derrida, Derrida. 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 Wait, wait. Of Grammatology, Spivak's translation. She had me read this. Baudrillard.
1: So you're reading Foucault and Derrida
0: and like all these French philosophers at the very
1: young age.
0: Not only at very young. I mean, I'm reading them, and sometimes in their very early. So when, they're, when they start to become a sensation, I actually attended a seminar on Judith Butler around the time *Judith uh, Gender Trouble* was in pre uh, was it was a manuscript form. So I was very actually inducted into this very postmodern, poststructuralist, French-oriented mm-hmm. Hegelian European mindset. And okay. I, was, I was marinated in that. Ten years—that's l- a great, what a great word to use. We okay.
1: were marinated I'm in a made particular made philosophical but,
0: school. But here's what happened: ten years later, I got bit by an English bug, and I revolted against that and started reading Hume, and started reading. I, I fell in love with Isaiah Berlin, Stuart Hampshire, and Bernard Williams, which those folks yeah, very, very English, and all those folks are very suspicious and skeptical about the French. Um, started, <laughs> yeah. So, that, so, I, so but now I've come full circle because I'm reading all late Foucault now. So I'm actually kind of, um, and also theologically, uh, I became very interested in Christianity. Uh, and that's a more recent interest, but my, you know, my interest in Christianity is very radical. And I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of Christians would not recognize it as Christian, probably, you know.
1: Probably not, probably
0: no. Probably not, but I'm also very interested in in, in Zen thought. And, okay. and definitely, there is definitely a thought to Zen. Zen is is, is not, I think the Zen, the scriptures. And so I, I have, you know, I basically, I'm a speed reader. So I'm able to sort of get into all this stuff. So I could go in any direction you want to go. But as far as like, you know, who, what I am not, I don't know. I just, um, I'm trying to blend. I try to blend things together that don't seem to go together. So I sort of, say, well, what, is the con- what does the continent have to offer that the pragmatic empiricists don't, and, we're, we're, and vice versa, uh, right? So I, I try to combine that, and what, is, what are the Christians, what is real, what I call real Christianity, mm-hmm. which for me is radically distinct from historical Christianity, which mm-hmm. historical Christianity is a disaster, you know, ethically, oh, yeah. No, it really—it's—it's it's just a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's yeah, totally, di- but that's totally different than like you know, really, if somebody is a is a serious uh, thinker, theologian, that's ho- totally different. But you know, I also, you know, I read a lot of secular thought. Of course, mm-hmm. I listen to Sam Harris's podcast he's an atheist and mm-hmm. um his atheism is is irritating to me because I don't think you know he has a very weird definition of of i don't know of a lot of things but but he you know he has good he has guests on his show I like and yeah so I, I'm not one of these people i I don't believe that the world works i don't I don't think that there's a person in a throne sending people to hell and sending people to heaven. I just don't think the the world works that way. And I, you know, I'm not I'm not going to let people that do think the world works that way ruin my life and I'm not going to pay any attention to <laughs> yeah. you them. Know. That
1: is a that's a really great note to end on. Yeah. Don't let people who think the world works that way ruin your life. I think that is a great way to move forward. Yeah. As an American living in this age and time. Oh boy. Um Mitch, this has been really illuminating, Mm -hmm. fascinating. And I thank you so much for letting me pose these really personal questions to you that I I think a lot of your listeners are going to be curious to hear your answers. (laughs) uh, You know, you're always on the other side of the the mic. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to turn the tables on you and Mm -hmm. put you in the hot seat for a change. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, merci beaucoup. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, you're a great interviewer. I think you should do this. Oh, I don't, know. I don't know if I'm a great inter- interviewer. I, you know,
1: um, it's definitely a skill that I'm willing to work on. Uh-huh. I used to do interviews um, when I worked for a regional film festival. I did in-person, on-stage interviews with filmmakers back then. So I used to get a lot better at it. But um, mm. it also helps to have a good you know, subject who can elaborate on answers and and really give of yourself. I think that's what makes a good interview subject is somebody who's willing Mm -hmm. to give of themselves and you're, you're always willing to do that. So thanks so
0: much. Thank you. uh, Look forward to hearing listener feedback.
1: Yeah. I really hope that the couple of call drops you're able to kind of edit out or stitch together Mm -hmm. seamlessly.
0: Okay. Well, thank you.
1: It's been really fun, and uh, I I hope you'll let me do this again with a whole different set of questions next time. <laughs>
0: I think it's a plan. I'll definitely uh, uh, we'll remind each other to do that.
1: Great! Yeah. That sounds really great. Bye bye. Well, Mitch Thompson, everyone, <laughs> big applause. <laughs> oh,
0: boy. Take care. Be safe.
1: <laughs> See you next time. Bye,
0: Mitch. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello. Hello, Madam B. Yeah, that's me. (laughs) How's it going, Mitch? It's good. Uh, This connection sounds pretty good. Um, Um. Okay. Um, are you? Are we actually? Are you taping right now, or this is the episode? Oh, this is
1: the episode. Okay, so there's there's no prep, no nothing. We're just
0: well. There's always prep. I mean, but it's not. It's <laughs> not. Um, you know, it's a. But but I I'd like to say a little few words up front, if I may. Okay. Um. I some of my guests I actually know personally, and then you know there are other guests who I've never met, but I you know I know. Their accomplishments or things they've achieved in in the arts, usually, or things related to aesthetics, and then you're you're in a category all your own because you're somebody, <laughs> because you're somebody that I actually know but not in person, it is not in physical person. I know long distance or, or right. So uh, yeah, it's been a phenomenon of the
1: whole pandemic, the whole plague era that um, I'm hearing about a lot of friendships being forged mm-hmm. across you know across long distances <clears throat> and you're just, you're one and there've been a couple of others, but yeah, I mean, it's been, I think you're, our friendship has been the best thing to come out of the plague for me.
0: Oh, that's beautiful for, to hear you say that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a little bit older than that because, um, I mean, I've known you, I guess, uh, because of, because of Anna Diller and a couple other people. So.
1: It's, oh yeah, that's, that's true. But I don't think you and I ever spoke or, no. um, you know, really had real like one-on-one communication
0: yeah. uh before the plague so right i mean it's interesting when you said across the atlantic sea i thought of the song from hair um you know that song <laughs> i'm a genius so i believe uh, <laughs> yeah of course <laughs> that's me what is it uh K- finds it's groovy to hide in a movie pretends he's Felini <laughs> and antonioni and also his cousin volanski Polanski all rolled roll into one uh, yeah yeah the atlantic sea because you're across the atlantic sea right I'm across the Atlantic Ocean, yeah. Yeah, so um, where did you want to begin? Because I know that um, I did want to discuss, you know, what it's like to be an expatriate.
1: Um, Well, I guess, you know, like, like you were saying, I... Um, I, first of all, I'm, I'm kind of flattered that you asked me to, to do this because I listen to your podcast and I'm definitely not in a league with any of the people that have ever been on your podcast. Uh-huh. So, you know, let me be the first to say, I don't have like a pile of books or <laughs> other like extraordinary accomplishments, but I guess yeah. in this day and age, um, you know, especially with the, uh, the political environment you're experiencing in the U S mm. right now, um, I guess my accomplishment has been that I did the thing that so ma- I hear so many of my friends and acquaintances who are still in the States constantly talking about, you know, what they wish they could do. is I want to leave America. I want to move to Europe. I want to move anywhere. I want to get out of here. Wow. And so it seems that, you know, I don't give myself enough credit probably for the fact that I actually did that. Yeah. I, I'm one of those rare people that actually did leave America, but uh-huh. I didn't leave recently. I've been in Europe for almost 14 years now. So it's, wow.
0: you know, 13 or 14 years. I've been here a very long time. That so, um, is a long time. So you sort of came over. That's interesting. I mean, do you mind getting into some details about your earlier life? Because I, I know I, you know, there's certain things I can talk about, certain things, you know, I want to be respectful of the guest and, and I know that you have a Chicago roots is this true or
1: Yes that's true yeah. so um just a little brief bit of background I'm from a, uh, I have a multi-ethnic background. My mom is Thai. My father was a Kentucky hillbilly. Mm -hmm. And so I spent um, most of my childhood, like my formative years were spent between Chicago, Thailand, and Japan, actually, where my father was stationed at the time. So um, I didn't actually end up living in Chicago full time until I was about six years old. Mm -hmm. And... So I always consider Chicago my, my true home. Like that's where my heart will always be. No matter where I am in the world, mm-hmm. Chicago's the place I always want to go back to that. I always kind of long for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was a Chicago girl until I was about 18 and then I moved to London. Wow. And over the course of my life. So I've lived in a number of different cities and I do have this kind of a wanderlust mm-hmm. and, um, over the years, you know, I did London, and then I moved back to the States. I ended up in Florida for quite a while. Oh, uh, well. And then up to New England for a little bit, then New York City, then from New York City to Germany, then Germany to France. So my first steps onto European soil were actually Germany. Hmm. And uh, I've been in France now almost six years.
0: That's, so I mean, that itinerary is um, <laughs> much, much uh, I mean... That's a that's a a resume itinerary that's very similar to many journalists and reporters or people that, you know, that's quite a quite a lot of travel.
1: Uh, well, my father, in fact, was a, a, a journalist, um, so that that probably has something to do with it. Uh, during his years in the military, he was an editor for Stars and Stripes. Oh, wow! Now defunct, yeah, but wow. then for the rest of his civilian career, he was an editor for Time Life Books. If you you remember those like collections of books, you know, like encyclopedia like oh, books. Yeah. He he was one of the editors on those mm-hmm. books. So that's, um, you know, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of in my blood. And I think my father also had this wanderlust. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just start to get real antsy after a few years. Like, you know, I've been in France six years now, and I'm already like, okay, which
0: country are we going to next, you know? But I think we're going to be here for quite a while because well, my sure. husband is French, so. Sure, wow. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I remember the time life, I mean, that's a very 70s um it is phenomenon. Those Time Life books. I know that I, you know, have a couple that it's uh, a way to try to encapsulate. I mean, I know I send you things to tease you about being from Chicago. I'll send you um, Mike Wojko I, Ar- archives. Oh of- yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I love all lot the
1: lot of, Chicago
0: things. Yeah. yeah, Bob Newhart stuff and and all that. And I just don't know. Um, so there must be a, a big change if you're in London and then there's a lot of jokes. Well, there used to be a lot of jokes about England versus France, you know, and and, and, and um and- and those uh-huh. jokes still very much exist, especially in
1: my household. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> I have a very, very French husband who doesn't seem to grasp British British humor or at least doesn't like it, put it that way. Uh-huh. And so there's we have a good laugh about the Brits. Um, uh-huh. But I myself, oddly enough, I would describe myself more as an Anglophile. I've never been a Francophile. Uh-huh. And so it's, it's very interesting to me to talk to friends whom – I would say I would describe them as kind of francophiles, mm-hmm. who um, have never actually lived here, and their idea of France is—it's um, kind of a caricature, you know. Yeah, it's not really what it's like here. So, and in terms of me being an expat, I actually don't describe myself that way. I describe myself as an immigrant. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I feel that the word expat is loaded with uh, kind of. I don't know. I, I don't understand why we use expat for some people and immigrant for others. And the only distinguishing characteristic that I can find is that it seems to be that like white people get expat, and anybody of you know color gets immigrant. And mm. so I, I, I'm an immigrant here, and I'm having an immigrant experience here. So I, I identify as an immigrant in France, definitely.
0: Well, I, I, I'm really happy to hear you talk about that, and if you want to, you can even talk more. I mean, I only use that word out of out of uh, you know a kind of custom. I you know, and it, if you recall, I was not wedded to it in any in any any respect.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think yeah. you know, t- just technically speaking, an expatriate is somebody who leaves their homeland, moves to another country, and relinquishes citizenship of Uh, their home country. uh, So, So, um, you know, this is something I haven't done yet. I still do hold an American passport. I still am an American citizen. I am a French resident, and I haven't Mm -hmm. chosen yet to become a French citizen Mm -hmm. because to do that, you have to relinquish your—I would have to relinquish my American citizenship. And despite everything, I'm not quite ready to do that.
0: So you're, you're, so you're an immigrant living in, in Paris, right? Yes. I mean, you're living, yes, in, you're living in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I mean, I really, uh, I, I just, uh, marvel at that. I mean, um, uh, Well, you know, your, your, your podcast
1: is called the journey of an Aesthetic. So, I mean, if you're talking about an aesthetic sensibility, Paris is it, you know, you move here because, and you suffer all of these hardships to live here because when you walk out the door and you just walk down any random street here, Mm -hmm. you know, Marie Kondo, the the organizing specialist, she talks about, you know, only keeping things in your life that that spark joy. And, um, you know, no matter what you think of her, there is something to that, that principle. Mm -hmm. And when you walk down the street here, you will see things every 10 seconds that spark joy. It could be yeah. something as seemingly, you know, banal as some bricks on a, on a building or, you know, or it could be the, you know, Petit Palais or the, uh, the Eiffel Tower, of course, or Montmartre. It could be any number of things, yeah. small and, you know, massive here that spark joy. So you're just, the whole experience of walking through this city is a joyful aesthetic experience. You know, you feel like you're in a snow globe when you're walking around. I mean, you've been here, so I know you understand that.
0: Yeah. Well, I was there last time I was there was some time ago it was for my father's wedding, my late father's wedding at the American church. And I'm sure you've seen the see, American church. And, yeah.
1: Yes. And, and the thing is, if you were to come here now, you, you would certainly see, you know, that, you know, there's, there has been some modernization of the city. I mean, I think probably when you were here, for example, the whole, um, la defense probably didn't exist yet mm-hmm. but you know it's it doesn't really change that much you know if you look at really all of the old movies all of the old like french new wave movies that mm-hmm. everybody which is where everybody seems to get a lot of their i their romantic ideas about yeah. paris seems to be it seems to come from either the french yeah. new wave movies or even earlier than that you know if you're talking about <laughs> Literally, An American in Paris, that film. I think yeah. a lot of people get their idea about Paris from, from movies. Uh. And when you come here, just like with any major city where, you know, there's this whole mythology that's built up by cinema, the real life thing is not like that. What you're seeing in the movies and in postcards and whatnot is a yeah. construct.
0: So, but you know, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you. uh, I think if I understand what you're saying to a point, I mean, I I feel. So there are there are movies that I've experienced um, that I think uh, dispel that. In other words, they're actually sort of accurate. And I'm going to off the top of my head. I'm going to name a movie uh, Vendredi soir.
1: Ventre, di, Ventre di soir. Ventre okay. soir. Okay.
0: Yeah, I don't pronounce right. Is, does that movie have a bit of a traffic jam and just the just this beautiful? Isn't there a bit of the <laughs> real Paris in that? Yes, I mean, of course. Yeah, there are definitely
1: movies that depict Paris in a much more realistic uh, way than the more romanticized version of it. Um, there was a movie that came out many, many years ago, and it was a set of vignettes. But to be honest, it's, it's not a great. Movie, but mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking for a Paris related film to watch, and I think it was simply called Paris I Love You,
0: yeah, I saw it,
1: Paris, je t'aime, yeah, and it's just vignettes. And actually, I find the, the shots in that movie and the depiction of mm-hmm. you know, kind of normal Parisian life to be more accurate than I've seen in you know, in, in something like Amelie, for example, which okay. is a lot of you know, magic realism,
2: yeah, like
1: if you go to that. If you go to the uh, the bar the the bar restaurant that's featured in Amelie that everyone's so in love with, when you go there in person, mm-hmm. it's nothing to shout about at mm-hmm. all. It's just like you walk up to you and you're like, "Huh, wow, that's that's it, really?" Because like I could find an even I can find a better place, you know, yeah. like two blocks away. It, it just proves to you the magic of cinema yeah. and how you can you know, kind of really distort reality sure. from behind the lens. And I have mm. such, I mean, I really have a great respect for anybody who can do that
2: mm. because
1: their paint. you know, I think, you know, a movie like Amelie is actually like a moving painting.
0: Mm. It's a
1: moving painting of, of of a very idealized Paris.
0: Yeah, it's true. That's true. What, so, how do you feel about something like La Mamá La et Le Prétain? I mean, that's early 70s. Uh, um,
1: uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's always, there are so many, you know, films that we could reference that yeah. that evoke, you know, each one evokes its own specific feeling. And I, as you know, I do have a preference for films of the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. With regards to French film, though, I'd say my preference is even more in the 60s. Yeah. So late 60s, early 70s, is it yeah. for me? um but yeah you know i i think that uh in terms of living here and assimilating into french culture and parisian culture and uh-huh. french society in general it's it's not what a lot of people might think it is I think a lot of, you know, like I was saying, a lot of my friends are just, you know, oh my God, you live in Paris, oh, it's so romantic. It's, it's really not. <laughs> it's really not. It's Paris is a very gritty place, believe it or not. There are certain oh, sections yeah. of the city, you know, certain arrondissements are much more like, wow, you know, this is the postcard Paris. If you're walking around, you know, the grounds around the Louvre, the Jardin Luxembourg and all of that, mm-hmm. it's like whoa you know this is on you really feel you can really feel like you're in a fairy tale especially if you happen to be lucky enough to be walking through those areas when it's not crowded Mm -hmm. um that's actually been one of the i have to admit it's one of the best things about this pandemic year Mm -hmm. is that the city is just emptied out it just emptied out like right away um and you get to see the city in a way that you've never seen it before because normally it's so crowded with tourists and traffic and, you know, mm-hmm. commuters and everybody else. And it was the very first time, for example, that I saw an, a completely men- an empty metro station. With like nobody walking down the halls, nobody on the escalator, nobody on the stairs, nobody on the platform. I had never experienced that before. It was kind of eerie, but also really kind of cool. Like, wow, like this is kind of very surreal to be, you know, on, you know, line 13 or line 14, even, even, Mm -hmm. you know, more so where there's just nobody around. And, It's the same like walking through any public space here. You know, we have a lot of, like, beautiful liminal spaces in Paris. And usually you don't really – they don't feel very liminal because they're so crowded with humans. Mm -hmm. And then to have all of those humans suddenly just wiped out of the the picture, Mm -hmm. you know, to go over and, like, just stand in front of these big, vast spaces in the city – it's it's been an incredible experience and um i'm gonna treasure that aspect of this forever wow
0: yeah well, so uh, what other um we have a, we have uh just a, about i think 15 more minutes or so um in that amount of time would you want to evoke for the listener and this is maybe too big a question or too large a topic um the experience of living in Paris for as long as you have overall and what, what things are unique about that kind of life, whether it's diet or how food is prepared or just, I don't know, um, weather, climate, anything. Wow. Okay. So yeah,
1: I, where to begin? Okay. <laughs> so um, we can start with the climate just because this week we are having incredibly bipolar weather, which is pretty typical. Um, of the the climate here, it's so it's a very oceanic climate. Mm-hmm. A lot of rain, a lot of clouds, a lot of you know. And those clouds, I'm not complaining about them at all. Just want to go on the record, I'm not, actually not complaining about the rain and the clouds because I love rain and clouds. Mm. Um, and they're often part of the, you know, they're they're often part of the scene. They're just part of the scenery. I don't. I couldn't picture Paris without the clouds. Yeah. In fact, when it's a bright, beautiful so-called beautiful sunny day with blue skies.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm just
1: not really into it. I want the clouds. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: so, you know, the, I'd say the main, the first of all, between your American, typical American lifestyle and French lifestyle, huh. and especially living in Paris, oh. okay, in a big city like this, you're not it's not it's not a car society here, although it is a car society when you leave Paris, when you go anywhere else in France pretty much, you have you know a lot of people living in kind of rural or semi-rural or suburban areas where you you've got to have a car even if you just want to go shopping. so um you know life here is predominantly on on foot, on public transport or on small wheels, bicycles. Uh, the big thing now of course are these little like uh razor scooters, scooters that like every it's it's not just little kids riding them now, it's it's full grown adults riding these scooters everywhere. Yeah. They're they're convenient, I guess, and they um you know, they get from point A to point B without ever having to set foot on public transport if you don't want to. And since you know since the plague began I've seen a lot more people getting more into razor scooters and, uh-huh. and roller skates and even skateboards. It's been it's been kind of cool to see this. So that's the first thing I think that's different is that you know things here aren't they're just not really convenient or comfortable. And one of the bigger the biggest adjustments you have to make uh-huh. moving to this particular city. Um, is you have to get used to being uncomfortable. <laughs> you have to be, you know, you have to just kind of accept that life is inconvenient, uncomfortable a lot of the time compared to what your experience is as a an American living in, you know, yeah. a nice big house with a car access to whatever you want and eat at any time of the day because everything's open 24 hours a day. You know, we don't have that here. Right. So, you know, that's a good way to segue into the food culture. The way, you, the way that uh, French people eat is nothing like the way Americans eat. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that in a kind of, a, I don't mean that to be a patronizing statement, but it is just different. And that's another thing that you have to get used to here. So, for example, the French really eat Three meals a day. And as a general rule, they don't snack. So um, Mm. just a quick, funny story. The the first time I went to a French supermarket, and I just kind of walked past the section that had, you know, things like potato chips and Doritos. It's a very small section here. You know how in the States it's like a whole aisle, and there's 80,000 different flavors of Doritos and, you know, it's, there's just so many flavors and varieties of chips and snacks and that kind of food. And here it's a really small section by comparison in any supermarket. And for the longest time, I just couldn't understand like what the consumption occasion was for those types of products here because nobody I knew ate those things. Uh-huh. I never saw people snacking. My husband doesn't snack. Um, nobody in his family snacks. They, they just don't snack here. And then I realized that the, those kinds of foods, those snacky foods, things that Americans will just, you know, eat sitting in front of the TV, like, you know, watching Netflix yeah. in your underwear, those types of snacky foods are generally reserved for what is called the aperron here, which is like a, a, this cocktail time. It's like a cocktail and snacks. And it's just yeah. generally something you have before, like... Um, a big dinner like with Mm -hmm. the family or with a group of friends Mm -hmm. or you might invite friends over just for a drink and you would have you would also put out these little kind of snacky foods for that but in general yeah you don't see people just walking around with bags of chips here um and again in general people just don't walk and eat at the same time either (laughs) um they just they just don't food is very very important to the french Mm. and they've the, the feeling among this society is if something is good enough to eat show it the respect to sit down and savor it you know mm-hmm. um so you you might see somebody like you know just sucking down a, a croissant early in the morning if they're rushing to work but as a general rule it's, it's just not done um yeah. I and mean,
0: you just sit so- down for you. I I hold, hold that thought I'm, I'm sorry so so it's just yeah it's just basically uh, uh, almost a taboo or it sort of um, expresses a, a, a kind of um a lack of respect for food and diet you know that that in yeah I, whole yeah that's
1: exa- I think that's exactly right is yeah. that there's a general feeling that you know um in yeah. it's it's this is a culture that also values just a kind of self-care and self nourishing yeah. um That, you know, if you're going to respect the food and respect yourself, sit down, eat your food, enjoy it. Don't just suck it down. You're not even tasting it. You know, you're just running... You know, to work
2: mm-hmm.
1: and eating at the same time—it's just not done here. You don't even really see people walking around with cups of Starbucks around here. Mm-hmm. I usually get called out really fast for being an American because I'm the one walking down the street with a Starbucks, drinking mm-hmm. as I walk. That—even that's not really done here that much. Mm-hmm. So when you spot those people, you know right away that they're Americans, or in some cases, they might be British. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, you know cuz the british have ad- adopted a lot of american habits so that's one of them mm. and so you know that uh, adjusting to the different way that french people eat has been very um you know it it was a really big challenge in the beginning now it's fine but in the beginning i was kind of a person where, in terms of food and mm-hmm. eating, I'm kind of a grazer, you know. Mm-hmm. I just I like cooking, but I'm not one of those people that ever really did the three meals a day thing. It's like you know, if I feel hungry one day for breakfast, I'll have breakfast. I might skip lunch. I might you know, for dinner have tuna and crackers. They don't really do that kind of thing here. Mm-hmm. It's breakfast is taken at home. Yes, and typical French breakfast the north. Uh, most French are going to eat something like um, yogurt with granola or some cereal mm-hmm. or uh, tatine, which is just a fancy word for bread mm-hmm. <laughs> with jam or right. butter on it. That's about it. And then, you know lunch, you would kind of have something a little more proper, and dinner is usually going to be something um, a hot meal.
0: Well, uh, even good things have to conclude, and so we're we're coming upon the conclusion of this this portion of our of our plan i did you want to talk at all or do you mind discussing your plans for the future with regard to possibly communicating to the public about french life or do you have plans in that
1: regard? i do and yeah i am i am in the process of uh putting together a youtube channel (laughs) where i am going to do videos about probably mostly french food, French cooking, French food history. This is my my primary area of interest these days is, is food. Um, so, you know, and I, especially, I think especially because now that we've experienced life without restaurants, mm. more people than ever have gotten into cooking at home and experimenting with recipes and, you know, just getting more interested in food in general where you know prior to this it was a much more you know go out to eat kind of a society mm-hmm. so um yeah i think i i am in the process of doing that and i'll let you know as soon as this is up and running
0: well yeah that's important because we'll definitely link to it when we release this episode if it's if it's um up and running by then which it might be you know who knows um but we'll I, see <laughs>
2: i'm
0: very i'm very excited uh about your channel i think it'll be a good channel And I think I think so, too, actually. And I think given your you know, I'm really thankful for your generosity and time, because I think, you know, a lot of people can speak about a lot of things. Um, But one of the things I want to say in conclusion is that you're very, um, you know, you're very clear. A listener audience understands where you're coming from and you speak well. And I really appreciate appreciative of that fact. And uh, so thank you for that. well, I got me one of them American diplomas,
1: Mitch, from from a big old American university. So okay. <laughs> I'm getting to put my big old American vocabulary to use. Is that what it is? <laughs> or? Oh, I, don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm just a gabber, you know, in general, and I enjoy okay. conversation. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on to to talk. I always enjoy talking to you anyway. So. Yeah, the the fact that other people can hear us talking to each other, I guess that's, you know,
0: a good thing. That's the point. Well, uh, merci beaucoup. uh, uh, Je t'en prie. And uh, I'll see you in the next edition. Thank you.
1: All right, Mitch. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. (laughs) A bientôt.
0: Ciao. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.